This is a million little gods. I'm Ben Federson. And I'm Aaron Gowan. Say hey hey Ben. Can I just uh can you just make a little space for yourself there? Okay. Do you take one lump or two? Uh no sugar, if that's what you mean. All right then. Here you are. Two minutes, I think you should wait. Oh, thank you. I thought about making scones and clotted cream, but um, I can't do that. Actually, I can. I've made clotted cream before. It's it's surprisingly um, laborious. Clotted cream sounds like it would be really sort of complex it wouldn't be very fancy if it wasn't difficult that's true it's also portentous of what it does to your veins after you've eaten it what is what is this tea that we're drinking anastasia orange blossom flavored tea with bergamot and lemon okay you're not gonna ask why you like tea no we're going all British today. All British. Damn right. Wait, uh, how do I say that in British English? You're bloody right. Yeah, yeah. You're bloody right. So these tea bags, by the way, I just want to describe. They're very. They look like little cloth satchels. Is the only way I can describe them. I know. It feels very Edwardian. I have to say. Keep your pinky up. Um. Okay. To what do we owe this uh, improvised tea time? Uh, to whales. The, the giant aquatic mammal? No, the place where all the Welsh people live. The place where the word for hi has 40 digits and no vowels except for Ws. Yeah, I had uh, a colleague who was from Wales, and I asked her about pronunciation of a certain Welsh word, and she had no idea. She was old enough that they hadn't learned Welsh in school when she went to school in Wales, so... But they speak Welsh on TV in Wales. I mean, they're speaking Welsh like all over the place. The last time I was in Wales, there was this sign that someone had manufactured that said, speak English. <laughs> and, uh, you know, if, the way I see it is if they have that level of animosity towards the Welsh in England, then um, you can kind of see why Brexit happened. <laughs> well, according to my, my former colleague, Christina, she said that that emphasis on the Welsh language is a pretty new phenomenon. Mm. That at least when she was a kid, from her perspective, uh, it wasn't something that was emphasized. Yeah, that makes sense. Okay, so... So, what about whales? Okay, so it has to do with um, hiking in Wales. Do you, are, are you a hiker? Do you like hiking? I love hiking. I'm a, I'm a hiking person. What, uh, what kind of hiking do you prefer? Uphill, downhill, or flat? My, in rank order, my preference is uphill, flat, and downhill. I don't like hiking downhill. I do like hiking uphill, but hiking downhill is zero fun. I actually enjoy hiking downhill until I fall. I mean, it doesn't hurt my knees or anything. Oh, yeah. I, it's, it's really bad on my knees. Hmm. I, would, I, I would roll downhill if I could. I hiked up the Watzmann once. Do you know the Watzmann? No. It's, it sounds like it's in Germany. It is. It's the second highest peak in Germany. I think number one is the Zugspitze, and then comes the Watzmann. And that's in Berchtesgadener Land down in um, Bavaria. Hmm. Hiked up that one and back down again. Uh, pretty brutal. 
To traverse it, you need to cross from one peak to another peak via a rock that's wedged between the two peaks, and you have to latch yourself on to that rock with uh, a hook that's on your belt, safety belt. And um, the only thing you see on your right side is sheer wall, and then on your left side is, you know, the endless abyss. And it's, uh, how should I phrase this? Uh, horrifying. Terribly horrifying. I'm very afraid of heights. Are you afraid of heights? I have a healthy respect for heights. I've always been fascinated by uh, the fear of heights. Kierkegaard is one of my uh, philosophical touchstones. And famously, uh, in the book, The Concept of Anxiety, which he uh, wrote under the pseudonym Vigilius Haufniensis, he associates the fear of heights with um, pure freedom. And I've heard a lot of people contend that um, he acknowledges that there's a normal fear of heights and then, and also there's some semblance of your recognition of your own freedom that, that is caught up in the fear of heights. But I, you know, I've, I've read that a few times and um, as far as I can tell, that's what he means. He means that the fear of heights is simply your own recognition of your freedom. Anxiety, he says, may be compared with dizziness. He whose eye happens to look down into the yawning abyss becomes dizzy. But what is the reason for this? It is just as much in his own eye as it is in the abyss. For suppose that he had not looked down. Hence, anxiety is the dizziness of freedom which emerges when the spirit wants to posit the synthesis and freedom looks down into its own possibility laying hold of finiteness to support it. Freedom so comes in this dizziness. In that very moment, everything is changed, and freedom, when it again rises, sees that it is guilty. Between these two moments lies the leap that no science has explained and no science can explain. Do you mind if I take us back to the well one more time and we listen to Armand Marie Lavois speaking about how he uses the term race? Go for it. When using the term, I was careful not to fall into the trap of trying to decide how many races there are or, or who gets to be in a different race. I suppose the reason is because the way I think about it, the way in which genetic variation is distributed across the world is very much like a landscape. So there are mountains and there are valleys and there are hills and so on and so forth. But exactly what we call a hill or a mountain, I mean, how different does the topography have to be before we actually give it a distinct name is actually astonishingly arbitrary, right? You know, I mean, in, in, in England, there are things that we call mountains, which um, in America would be mere hillocks, right? This is a fundamentally flat country. Um, and our proudest mountains are mere bumps compared to the, the Rockies. 
This has resulted in, in historically, in, in the old physical anthropologists, you know, the 19th century and early 20th century, you know, getting terribly excited about counting up how many races there are. Some say there are five, some say there are seven, some, some, some identify, you know, 25. Uh, it, it just went on and on and on. We can allow that there's plenty of ambiguity um, in, in, in a term, and we can still use the term, you know, as a shorthand for saying, that this is a genetically distinct population in some fashion or another. What is there in a mountain that stands out to us? I guess that's something like a pun. Why do we feel compelled to understand them? Why do we feel compelled to wrap our minds around them? Do they stand out to us because they're conspicuous? Or have we conditioned ourselves socially to look for the sorts of gradations of change that we call mountains? Why do they inspire awe and respect? Are they beautiful or are they horrible? Why do they compel us to the sort of conflation of emotion and psychology, morality and cosmology, practically undifferentiated, that Kierkegaard practiced? Okay, great. Well, I'm Alex Ragmorley. Um, I'm a historian of science. Um, I focus on the early modern period, so that's roughly 1600 to 1800. And I'm an assistant professor of liberal studies at uh, NYU, New York University. I'm always fascinated by universities. As I was searching for ideas and inspiration and a little bit of serendipity, Regarding mountains, I happened upon an article by Alex on academia.edu called A Strange and Surprising Debate, Mountains, Original Sin, and Science in 17th Century England. Needless to say, it got my interest, and I got so much more than I was expecting out of it. It turns out Alex has a tremendous amount to say about the topic of our series, so much, in fact, that we're going to devote an entire special episode to speaking with him. But regarding that article, it was actually his master's thesis, and what a strange story it tells. I mean, the, the sort of autobiographical story of how I got into this is I was reading a book by um, a scientist called John Wilkins, who's uh, instrumental in the foundation of the, the Royal Society of London, which uh, still functions as, as the UK's National Academy of Science, basically. And uh, he um, was writing about the presence of mountains on the moon. Galileo had had... had essentially using telescope noticed that there are mountains on the moon and, and used uh, the shadow that the mountains cast on the, the surface of the moon to work out roughly how high they were and he's completely wrong but anyway he, he calculated the very extremely tall mountains and John Wilkins starts talking about this and he says you know many of you may be thinking that the presence of such enormous mountains on the moon would be a terrible thing ghastly that there would be these enormous mountains there. But let me try to show you that mountains are in fact good. Uh, yeah. Wait, can we, um, can we take, just take a step back, please? And then he kind of reels off kind of 15 reasons why mountains are awesome. And I was completely floored by that. I mean, that's the, basically the reason why I'm a historian of science, because I just couldn't wrap my head around this idea that the, the, the sort of question motivating the study of mountains would be whether they are good or bad yeah i'm feeling you alex it's 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 not just that 
that the question is whether they're good or they're bad. It's uh, the presumption that they're bad. It's like, hey, everybody, I got some news about the moon. Now, don't, don't freak out. There are mountains, but it is not as bad as it sounds. Yeah, uh, and so that that brought up all kinds of fascinating questions uh, relating to the 17th century. Firstly, that um, romantic sort of uh, vision, aestheticization that we perform on mountains now, the idea of mountains as these kind of majestically beautiful, sublime objects that impress us with the sort of idea of the power that went into creating them and, and, and fill our minds with kind of noble, sublime thoughts, that didn't exist at all. So, you know, really, you know, people didn't talk about mountains that way. And on top of that, the, the sort of negative aesthetic of mountains, the idea that mountains were not beautiful, fed into a kind of series of debates about why there are mountains in the world, how they came into being, and what they're for. What Alex is recounting may seem unrecognizable, but it's the nascent germ of the modern empirical study of geology. And it's unrecognizable, you're right. Do you remember our series preview, Linguistic Typological Smackdown, with the debate between John McWhorter and Sally Coco Mufuene? First of all, there's more of that on the way. But more importantly, recall my recounting of the history of the term Creole. The relationship of that word to its extensions has developed so widely that its origin is beyond our ken. But dipping your finger into the river of time and evolution, you'll find that wherever your finger is, its position is contiguous with the flow behind it and the ripples before it. The way some linguists use the word Creole now is highly refined, and they would contend scientifically rigorous. Though the word has its origins in something fleeting and potentially pernicious, that doesn't mean it doesn't refer to something important today. Right. Uh, uh, that, that to me was really interesting. I mean, just as a kind of coder on that point about romantic aesthetics, uh, the key author in the, this debate about mountains was a guy called um, Thomas Burnett, and he wrote a book called The Sacred Theory of the Earth, which tries to explain why there are mountains on the earth. Um, and that book is a major source for later English Romantic poets, like Samuel Taylor Coleridge's copy of a book is in, in the British Library, and you can see his annotations. Like he's been picking up the language and kind of thinking about, you know, his descriptions of mountains as terrible, fierce, awful objects. Um, so yeah, so there is actually a, a 17th century scientific debate about whether mountains are, are good or bad and what they, what they mean uh, for us as inhabitants of the earth. And that is at the same time as, as being a kind of moral debate with um, uh, religious and aesthetic implications is also a scientific debate, although not one which is necessarily recognizable to us. Um, I mean, the key questions at stake really, I mean, again, quite hard for us to relate to. And there are kind of two key issues around mountains. The first is why do they exist? And that for us, the idea that everything in nature has to be purposive. Um, is not necessarily... Um, I mean, intuitively, I think a lot of people talk about nature that way, but it's not the way we're meant to think about nature. Um, with Whoa, <laughs> wait a minute. <laughs> we're supposed to think about nature. That's a purposive statement, too. Uh, absolutely, yeah. So there's, that, so there's that idea. What are they for? What do they do? 
Uh, and that opens up. I mean, essentially, what you get out of that eventually is the water cycle and the idea that, that mountains play this role in, in, in providing us with, with water supplies. But the other question is about time and how much time is required for mountains to come into existence and what type of process could bring those into existence. Um, for us, it's easy because we have millions and millions and millions of years to play with. So we can think about mountains coming to existence very slowly. But in the 17th century, unless you're very controversial, you think the world is about, you know, um, almost 6,000 years old. So there just isn't that much time to play with. And so most theories about the, the, where mountains come from have, have to be um, catastrophist theories. There has to be some kind of event that produces most mountains at once. Uh, you know, to, to explain what's what's going on there. So both of those issues are kind of problematic um, and raise a lot of questions that results in a lot more of an intense focus during the 17th century on you know, the study of mountains and the study of geology. It's remarkable the extent to which what we know today what we take away from these people of the 17th century are things that we feel comfortable saying are validated by the world in itself. Evidence points to their truth. The model of the water cycle is unassailable. Our measurement of the age of the earth owes everything to these debates. And yet, we wouldn't have gotten there without such questions as, what good are mountains? Are they beautiful or not? What purpose do they serve? How are they related to our story about humanity's sinfulness? What does God want to say to us with mountains? Or what have we done to deserve mountains? We're on the lookout for the Holy Family in a pane of frosted glass, and what we find instead is something approaching a decent model of things just exactly as they are. It's, it's worth coming back to the themes that I highlighted. Firstly, the uh, the, the kind of two assumptions undergirding um, late 17th century geology, if you want, obviously, no respectable historian of science would call it geology, but that's fine, it was geology. But the, the, the two assumptions undergirding late 17th century geology are firstly that you need to identify purposes for things, that, that things exist for reasons, and secondly, that um, you need to explain within a fairly short space of time why, how those things came to be. So you have kind of five or 6,000 years to play with. As the 18th century progresses, um, both of those assumptions come under um, sustained attack. So at the 18th century, you have, at the beginning of the 18th century, you have about 6,000 years to play with. By the end of the 18th century, people like um, Cuvier, um, Buffon, I mean, particularly French, uh, thinkers, because they're more anti-clerical than English thinkers, are sort of starting to suggest that we have millions of years to play with. So the, the great advantage that modern geology has is you have more time to explain how things came into being, so you don't have to rely on the idea of catastrophe to explain how all these mountains might appear um, at once. And the thing is, is that that time expansion also starts disconnecting geology from the moral story of humanity. 
because you can start imagining that there's a long period of millions of years, long before, maybe perhaps before humans even existed, in which those changes can happen and that they don't have to be kind of plugged in to the kind of sacred 6,000-year narrative of a particular group of people who, who you know, are, are sort of alternately blessed and cursed throughout history, depending what mood God happens to be in. Um, so that starts moving us more towards uh, modern geology. And the other thing is is this very slow collapse of um, teleological thinking in the sciences. As soon as you don't have to think about mountains purposively, it becomes easier to offer explanations for how they come into existence. You don't have to imagine that they come into existence for a given reason. Uh, so that helps. And I mean, interestingly enough, that, that the collapse of purposiveness in... Um, uh, scientific explanations also parallels the collapse in purposiveness in aesthetics in the sense that by the end of the 18th century a thinker like Immanuel Kant can argue that um, aesthetic pleasure or the sublime occur in us but they don't occur in us because they're attached to a particular moral value of, of good or bad okay so um, we can take pleasure in things regardless of whether or not they tend to some virtuous purpose and so there again, it's possible, it's possible to be inspired by mountains without having to wonder whether or not mountains hold a lesson for humanity. I propose a petition demanding the inclusion of Fanangaru as the first mountain in Wales to be included on all of His Majesty's maps. I bet you thought I forgot about Wales, didn't you? Oh, no, 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 no. Oh, no, 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 no. I've got Wales right up here in my head, just like the screenwriters of Star Trek Episode Four: The Voyage Home, or of this movie, The Englishman Who Went Up a Hill and Came Down a Mountain. I haven't finished yet. I don't want Fulangaru to be on the map because we begged for it, because we, we, we pleaded. No. If Fulangaru has to be a thousand feet, then I say let it be a thousand feet. But 20 feet, that's all we need. A 20-foot tump and we have our mountain. I'm not sure how legal that is. Yes, or ethical. Legal? Ethical? Well, how legal was it to say that a thousand feet is a mountain and 984 isn't? Huh? Do, do we call a short man a boy or, or a, a small dog a cat? <laughs> no! This is a mountain, our mountain. And if it needs to be a thousand feet, then by God, let's make it a thousand feet. I would prefer it, Mr. Morgan. That was the great Cole Meany you were just listening to. He's the real star of that movie, but the top billing went to Hugh Grant back in 1995, just before the uh, uh, incident on Sunset Boulevard, which is a deep cut for all you mid-90s enthusiasts out there. Just as an aside, I had a perfect replica of Hugh Grant's mop of hair back in 1995. We will not be posting a picture. Ben. When Lois made his analogy between the classification of hills and mountains and the classification of clusters within human populations, he mentioned that the hill classification thing was important to the people in the UK 
because the increases in elevation in Britain are so slight compared to other places. It's really flat there. Britain's long-standing culture of long walks and hikes and a pedantic streak that compels people to count the number of hills they've climbed have conspired to necessitate a whole community of private individuals and groups who go about surveying the hills and mountains of Britain to determine their height and sometimes to reclassify them. This community, together with the collective memory of that Hugh Grant movie, have made possible a whole cottage industry for journalists who can't think of anything better to write to tell how some land masses there in Britain have either been upgraded to a mountain or downgraded to a hill. Now, if you read those articles, you realize that the same couple of names just keep showing up throughout the whole oeuvre. So I decided I had to reach out to some of these so-called hillbaggers who do the surveying and ask them about why and how they do what they do. Hello? Hello? Hello, Mirthen. Uh, this is Aaron Gowan calling from Germany. Hello, Aaron. How are you? I'm well. Can you hear me well with the, with the microphone? Um, I, yeah. Um, why yeah. don't you, the first thing I'll do is have you introduce yourself. Um, my name's Graham Jackson. I was born in Burton-on-Trent in the Midlands in 1950. Um, I read chemistry at uh, university and then got a job with a chemicals company called ICI, uh, for which I worked for many years until um, about uh, mid-1990s, um, when I was then employed by the Laboratory of the Government Chemist, LGC Limited. Uh-huh. And I retired in um, 2008. Um, <clears throat> during the 1990s, I became interested in hill walking and um, joined a, a group which was formed from ICI, actually, a group of people that went up to Scotland regularly climbing the, the Munros. And I, I got a keen interest in, um, in hill walking uh, through that group. And that eventually led me into um, surveying, which um, I'm still doing with my colleague, um, John Barnard, who also worked for ICI. And, and that was how I got to know John. Uh, well, my name is um, uh, Meredith Phillips. I live in a market town in Mid Wales called Welshpool. I just have to interject. You may have not heard his first name. His first name is Merden. That is the Welsh name for Merlin. It's actually the origin of our word Merlin. And that is delightful which is about two or three miles from the English border. And um, my passion is hill walking. And uh, that has evolved over the years into hill and mountain surveying. Mm-hmm. How, did th- how did that process happen? Um, I, well, I discovered the hills and um, the enjoyment that does. that... <laughs> yeah, well, the enjoyment that that, that gave me. Why... Uh, move from simply hill walking to hill surveying? What was the impetus? Right. Um, Well, both John and I are editors of uh, something called the the Database of British and Irish Hills. You you may have um, Mm -hmm. seen the websites. There are two websites, um, hillbagging.co.uk and Mm -hmm. hillsdatabase.co.uk. And what that database aspires to achieve is to get the most accurate data on hills uh, that is pertinent to, um, to to their relevance to to, to lists, basically. Um, in the UK, we seem to be quite 
<laughs> quite fixed into um, into bagging lists, or quite a number of people are. Um, and uh, they like to know that the lists are going to be robust and the best that they can possibly be. Um, and that was really our, um, our raison d'etre for, for starting um, starting surveying. I've I've heard comparisons to train spotting before, and I don't. I mean, <laughs> I've never. Uh, I mean, yeah. You know, I guess is there something in the in the water in Britain that, that uh, inclines people to do? Yeah, just somewhat pedant. I think there uh, probably is. Okay. Um, <laughs> I became interested in um, listings of hills, and I think probably the the most well known in Britain are the Munros, the Scottish three thousand foot mountains. Mm-hmm. Um, and I found one or two uh, guidebooks to Welsh hills, and that's where my passion really lies within within Wales. Yeah. And um, I set out to, to try and uh, visit all the hills that were in this one particular list. And it sort of it's evolved from that. Um, and the more that you delve into uh, classification of hills. I mentioned, I think, in one of my recent emails to you that Britain uh, is probably the most well hill-listed country anywhere in the world. Mm. And there's a mass of different classifications of hills. Um, and I'm, I'm partly responsible for that. <laughs> um, so I, I, I'm in my late 50s now. and I, I started hill walking relatively late when I was in my late 20s. Mm-hmm. And um, that was going back to about 1988. And it was the late um, 90s and early 2000s that I first started uh, compiling hill lists. And as I mentioned, there there, there were many, many hill lists in existence before I started. But I've added a treasure trove to it as well. Um, But that is sort of, that's branched out onto surveying. Um, And that is, that brings so much more to it. A lot of people enjoy going out just, just for walks, and we've yeah. got some very nice countryside, the, the, the Lake District, which you, you're probably aware of. Oh, yeah. Um, and when people do walks and they see the hills and they go up the hills, then some people like to try to get those hills and put them into lists. Um, mm. One of the famous ones is Alfred Wainwright, who, who put together a, a list of hills for the Lake District, and that's very, very popular with, with people because they like going to the Lake District, they like walking, and I think they get a sense of achievement when they've walked all the hills that are on that list. Yeah. And uh, similar sort of thing with the, <coughs> excuse me, with the Munros in, in Scotland. Um, there's some fabulous scenery there. There are plenty of um, exciting walks to go on. And some people like to sort of tick off their achievements. And so that leads to... Um, to creating lists of, of hills like the, the Munros, which are the, uh, the higher hills in Scotland. So I'm just going to back up for a moment to uh, some of what you started to speak about, which is namely the, the vast number of lists that exist in Britain. And, and why is it that this holds such fascination for Britain in particular? Uh, it's a very good question. I, I don't know the actual answer to that. I can... I can... I can... I can give you one or two of my sort of thoughts relating to it. Yeah. Um, Part of it comes down to the landscape where we live. Because if you separate the highlands of Scotland, north of the the Highland Fault Line, um, and if you concentrate on the southern uplands of Scotland, England, Wales, but also 
at the, the whole island of Ireland. The topography within all of that land is very, very similar. Whereas the north of the Highland Fault Line, the Highlands of Scotland, is very different because you have, in relative terms, much higher mountains and many more of them. Yeah. It's, the topography and landscape is different. But when you concentrate on all of that southern section, the southern uplands of Scotland, England, Wales and Ireland, there's many bumps. You know, there, there aren't, there, there's not much of the country that is actually flat. Yeah. And especially in Wales, there, there's, you know, there's lumps and bumps of the landscape all over the country. And I think that adds to the impetus of somebody to to set about trying to categorize hills and, and trying to list them all. And part of that is also a personal challenge as well. I'm I'm currently, and it's, it's taken me, um, I think so far about eight and a half years, and I, I hope to complete it later this summer. This summer, So it's quite a major thing for me. I'm, I'm trying to map the whole of Wales down to what is known as, as P14. So every hill in Wales that has a minimum prominence of one, four, 14 metres. Mm. And there's literally thousands upon thousands of them. And to my knowledge, that's never, ever been done for any country in the whole world. Yeah. Um, and it, it's taken me about, as I mentioned, about eight and a half to nine years, and I hope to complete that late later this year. Um, I also think part of it is that the, the people that do these things, myself included, um, I think you have to have an appreciation and a love for a map. And, <laughs> yeah. And to, to me, um, you know, a good map, it's almost like a work of art, really. Um, and I can remember going back many years ago when I first started hill walking. My winters used to be spent with a guidebook and with Orton survey maps. And I'd get the map out and I'd be looking at, you know, land that I hadn't visited at that stage. So it was all new to me. Mm. And getting the guidebook and plotting out the routes that the guidebook would suggest on how to go to a hill. And I used to get my pencil and sort of draw lines of where the route was and then circle the summit of the hill and they were like little motorways on the map that formed. Um, and I do think that the people that compile hill lists, they have quite an avid passion for, for map study. So not only do you, you know, make lists of these hills, but you do a very specific form of surveying. You, you uh, try to determine um, uh, the heights of the hills. And I think there's more to it than simply height, which is an ambiguous idea anyhow. Height from where? You're going to have to determine, um, you know, a low point somewhere, a distance between mountains, I suppose, I, or uh, rather hills. Um, this, this kind of thing is going to be difficult to uh, determine. What are the criteria around which hills are... Uh, measured? How do you how do you go about measuring them? 
Right. I mean, to, to take up um, <clears throat> one of your points there, what, what do you measure height against, which mm-hmm. is a, a, a very good question, because it doesn't take a great deal of thought to realize there's no such thing as absolute height. Mm. Um, and all heights in the UK um, have been traditionally taken from Ordnance Survey maps. And that map um, uses a zero point um, at Newlyn in Cornwall. Uh, they measured with a tide gauge the, um, the high and low tides between 1915 and 1921, <laughs> took the mean of those, um, so it's the, the average water height, if you like, at Newlyn uh, between those dates, and that was given zero meters, uh, defined as zero meters of height. And so everything is measured against that sort of that hypothetical zero meters height. That That's just sort of delightfully specific and delightfully um, accurate, and yet uh, <laughs> also at the same time arbitrary. <laughs> yes, fantastic. because there's no such thing as absolute height, as, as yeah. you pointed out at the beginning. Mm. Um, there are lists like the Monroe's, which have a height criterion, but Monroe never defined um, any other criterion other than he classified some hills as Munros or summits um, and others as tops. But there was never any definition of what, why a top was a top and why a Munro was a Munro, mm. um, which has led to quite a lot of controversy since. Um, and then there are other lists which define both the height and the drop. Um, and the drop is when you go from the top of a hill to the col that links it to the next higher hill. Um, and that distance that you have to go down to the col is called the, um, the, the drop. Uh, and that tends to give hills on the list some sort of independence, if you like, from the geography around them. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there are, there are lists that, that have both a height um, and a drop criterion. Um, and one such list would be the um, the, the Scottish list of the, the, the lesser hills, the, the Corbett's, um, which have a 500-foot drop um, criterion, as well as being between 2,500 feet and um, 2,999 feet. Um, and then you've got other lists that have come in more recently, um, like the relative hills of Britain, or, or fondly known as the, uh, the Marilyns by many people now, where the definition of a hill is solely on, Wait, on is drop. That a, is that a joke because of Marilyn Monroe? Yeah, yeah, it is. Yeah, the, the author has a, a strange sense of humour. Okay. <laughs> don't, don't pass that on to him. Okay. Um, yeah, that, that's how they got the name. Um, and with that, the, the only criterion is that it's got to have a drop of 150 metres. So if it's an island that rises out of the sea to above 150 metres, then it would be a Marilyn. Um and uh, if it's, you know, a thousand feet high or whatever, um, and it's got, got a drop of, um, of 150 meters, then it will, be, um, it will still be a Marilyn. And in the UK, there, I think it's currently, currently standing at 1,557 of those. Mm. Um, so, that, so that's the sort of range, if you like, of hill list um, definitions. But it's, it's, quite, um, it's quite mixed and complicated. Can I ask about the 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 level of accuracy with which you can measure? Um, just in, in in what what unit of measure is the smallest unit unit of measure that you can possibly to to what unit of measure can you possibly measure? Well, I, I operate uh, a GNSS receiver, and it's um, 
the the equipment that I've got. It's 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 called a Trimble Geo XH6000. Okay. Um, it operates in a similar way to a CarSat nav that it gathers uh, data from orbiting satellites. Mm. You then have the choice either to um, have the data in real time when you're on the hill, or you post-process the data um, on your laptop afterwards. And post-processing is it's much cheaper, and that's okay. the option that all the independent surveyors that I know of have opted for. Yeah. Um, Trimble quote an accuracy level of 0.1 of a meter. 0.1 of a meter. Okay, yeah. so one, point ten, one of a meter of one tenth of a meter. Ten, ten, so ten, ten, ten centimeters. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Now, the, the other form of equipment that um, uh, friends of mine operate and also Ordnance Survey operate is Leica equipment. Leica equipment, um, again, they would quote an accuracy of 0.1 of a meter. Testing Trimble against, against Leica, the Leica is consistently more accurate than the Trimble. Mm. The Trimble is capable of um, the accuracy that Leica is, but occasionally the Trimble will throw out a result that's about 0.2 or 0.25 out. Is that because of the um, inaccuracy of the satellites at times? No, it's, position, just, it's just the form of equipment that, okay. that, um, that, that one would operate. Um, the great advantage of the equipment that I've got, um, it's got an internal receiver as well as it can be connected to, a, to an outside receiver. But having um, uh, uh, an internal, well, basically an, an internal antenna or internal receiver, you all you need to do is just place it on the ground, and it's it's if you can envisage what you know the very first mobile phones looked like. They were small sort of bricks, really, weren't they? Yeah. Rectangular in shape. Well, my equipment is similar, similar size. It weighs two pounds, which is next to nothing. Yeah. But but the great thing with it is Trimble quote that you only need two minutes of data collection to achieve an accurate result. Mm. I I normally take five minutes and. When you consider the accuracy that it's capable of, and when you consider all you need to do is place it on the ground for two to five minutes, that is incredible. You know, yeah. like like equipment, they recommend that um, you gather an hour's worth of data, and if you want to submit data to the Orton Survey for them then to change a map, which they do on occasion, mm. they they would require a minimum two hours of data collection. That's incredible. So, you know, operating the Trimble, with, I use it five minutes. One of the things I do, I don't necessarily just go out and survey a, a hill. What I can do is go on a hill walk and survey each point as I get to them because you, it only requires five minutes of data at each point. Yeah. So 10 centimeters is a very small distance. <laughs> um, you just mentioned putting them, finding outcrops for, the, for high points um, yeah. for the summit. Um, do you have so we're interested we're a philosophy podcast we're interested in um, gradients of difference and um, how difficult it is to uh, classify things once you enter into a high level of specificity and so that is a a, a very high level of, of specificity you're dealing with there do you ever run into um, situations where you're it's hard to know whether a particular spot in on an outcropping can be considered really part of the mountain or for whatever reason you might want to decide, you need to make a, a, a kind of quick decision there to say, well, this is a little higher, but somebody put a rock there or, or something like that. Do you have, 
do you have to make decisions like that when when uh, measuring? Well, the, 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 the there's two two points there uh, in my in my in my reply. Firstly, uh, surveys can operate a level and staff run on the summit to ascertain if they were say five rock outcrops all within about a hundred meters of one another. Mm. Visually, they may all look the same or of similar height. Yeah. So if you use a level and staff or some form of optical equipment, you can generally tell which is the higher, and therefore you can concentrate on that to to take uh, data from. Mm-hmm. The, the the other point in relation to that, which is the interesting, mm-hmm. one of the most interesting aspects, is over the last five or six years within Britain, people have debated on what constitutes a summit and what constitutes a col. Mm. Because many of the smaller heighted hills uh, in Britain, they may have a you know a, uh, a radio mast or a, a mobile phone mast on top. Mm. Would you include that as part of the summit? Would you include a, include a tree as part of the summit? Yeah, that's a good question. And, yeah, mm. and you can you can narrow this down more and more and more. Um, it gets very complicated for coals because. Again, because of the territory we're talking about for the smaller heighted hills in Britain, many of the coals are in valleys. So therefore, if you've got quite a prominent hill, the highest within the hill range, normally it's connecting coal to the next higher summit will be down in the valley. Now, that valley may have a road or it may have a railway. Now, going through that valley, you may find that many of the railways and roads, when they were built, necessitated a cutting. So therefore, the the coal has been decreased in height, or, or the drop value would have been increased mm-hmm. through, through man's intrusion. So there, there's there's very big debates going on, and they're still going on, whether you should always try to find the natural coal, or whether you would um, take the the bottom of the cutting if it, if it was on something called the hill to hill traverse. And what that is, if you imagine you're on the summit of a hill. And you're aiming to go to, you know, summit summit A, and you want to go to summit B. You would take the least line of resistance, as in, you wouldn't walk too far down to the valley because therefore you would have more uphill to climb. Mm-hmm. So you would always aim for the for the col. Um, and you can think of, um, you know, summits again on small heighted summits in Britain. You may have a hedgerow that over the years the root system has sort of pushed the earth up. Well, mm. you know, is that man's intrusion because they've planted the hedge or is that, or is that natural growth? <laughs> That's key. And, you know, how do you deal with uh, how do you deal with a canal that may be crossing a col? Um, you know, how do you build how do you deal with um, a reservoir and a dam? And all of these questions have been sort of asked and answered to a degree. Um, and there's no absolute definite answer to all of these a lot of it is subjectivity and personal judgment but it all adds interest to what point you should take to survey from yeah we've taken that level of pedantry one step (laughs) further um i mean if you look on the website um you'll see for for download i'm sure you won't want to read it um a a document called summits and calls which lays out how we determine what does and what doesn't count as a, as a summit, for example. Mm. Um, because on some of the lower hills that we measure, you may find that um, 
somebody has built a massive cairn. Do you take the top of the cairn or do you take the the ground? I mean, you've got to define what you're doing. Um, So we take the ground by the cairn. Um, We don't count loose rocks. They have to be properly embedded and and part of the hill, not not something that can be... But that that itself can be arbitrary, can't it? I mean, at some point, how do you define looseness? (laughs) Um, Well, a very good point, because um, is it just the tip of a rock that is buried in the soil and not connected to any um, lower rock? Um, And would you need to define it that way? Or do you define it as something that you can't pick up? Um, There is a a degree of non-quantification in in that, uh, as you have observed, yes, quite rightly. Uh, I mean, what we do is, is if... Um, if you give it a good bash and it doesn't move um, <laughs> and it looks as though it's well embedded in the ground, um, then you, you count it as, as, as part of the hill. But if that somebody is... goes up there with a digger, I'm sure, you know, they, well... they may come to a separate conclusion. <laughs> <laughs> well, first of all, it would be hard to get the, your digger all the way up there, I suppose. You wouldn't want to do it necessarily. <laughs> yeah. Uh, <laughs> but second... But, I mean, um, putting, I mean, being a bit flippant there, but I mean, putting that on one side... Um, when you get to the lower hills, there is quite a lot of controversy over what you should and shouldn't take as uh, as the summit, and particularly with man-made objects. Uh, and in this country, you will find little mounds on the tops of, of some hills which are prehistoric, and um, some have been mapped, and a great many haven't been mapped. And when you get there and you, you see a high point, you, you don't know whether it's historically a man-made feature or whether it's um, a natural feature, and you just have to do the best that you can. Well, and especially other, something that is historically man-made, but also you, you could almost make the case that that you might need some some time limit upon man-made history and and, and allow for 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 a burial mound or, or some form of uh, yeah rock formation can as you say that is ancient to be permitted as part of the natural history. And so I don't know. I mean, like, is there some time limit on man-made? Uh, what well, if it's made some people by some try, other yeah. other yeah, some other people hominid. try to um, introduce that that time limit, um, and there, there is one or two people that that say oh, it, it has to be pre-industrial revolution. Okay, um, but then I mean that also gets you into difficulties as well. Um, so there isn't a there isn't a, a unique way of making such um, such such definitions. But what we try to do is if we can identify the highest natural ground, that, that is what we would take. And if yeah. we can see what are clearly man-made features, we, we wouldn't include those. But mm. it, it's not an exact science, as you've rightly pointed out. Fascinating. Final question, deeply philosophical this time. Um, are <laughs> mountains and hills really things, or are they just a social contrivance that you have tried to quantify? Well, I, I think um, you, you'll have already looked in the dictionary and it says <laughs> something like a hill is conspicuous elevation that's lower and less craggy than a mountain, or words to that effect. And a mountain is an elevation that's higher and more craggy than a hill. So the, <laughs> the, the dictionaries so sort of sidestep the issue. Um, I mean, as far as we go in the UK, we, I mean, we as a group tend to talk about hills, to be quite honest, rather than, than mountains and, and mm. hills. Um, some authors like to talk about mountains. Um, I mean, there was one author that, that wrote a very good book, uh, Irving Butterfield, the, uh, the, the Mountains of, um, of Scotland. Um, other people just refer to, to them as hills. Um, 
and since there isn't a strict definition, um, I, 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 I tend to use the, the term hill because it's catch-all. <laughs> when you consider what a mountain is, and yeah. you know, it's, it's this massive upthrust of rock, earth, etc., well, you know, hills you can say are lesser upthrusts, but they're still sort of quite prominent. But it's it's how man perceives those, and um, there's almost a necessity. It's almost an intrinsic need, I think, in man or human as a species to try to make meaning of what is in nature. And somehow, I think that gives us a greater meaning to life, and it also gives us a greater understanding and. When one understands something, usually um, it's less frightening, um, and there's some. But I also think there's some form of control going on as well. But again, all of that then develops into measurement. It develops into things like time. Um, it develops into speed. All of it, to a great extent, is arbitrary, and all of it is either been designed or found by man. Um, but that then evolves and develops again into classification of things. That's right, and yeah. again, where my passion is with hill walking and mountain surveying, that is intrinsic. But it's all based on an arbitrary system because even criteria that I deal with on a daily basis as far as hills are concerned, the criteria given, the classification or the qualification given to a hill is arbitrary and it's, it's set by the respective hill list author. It can be based on certain elements, as in, and again, one of the interesting things with British hill listings is that you have this mix of imperial and metric measurement. Um, and for many years, before metric measurement took on in Britain, it was all imperial. So you have the Scottish Munros, the 3,000-foot mountains. Um, you have the Scottish Corbetts, the hills between 2,500 foot and 3,000 foot. And then you have the Grahams, which are under that, which is 2,000 foot to 2,500 foot. You have the 2,000 foot mountains of England and Wales. And time and time again, it was the 2,000 foot um, benchmark height that people kept on going to. And somebody called Michael Dewey um, produced a list. It was published by Constable, I think, in 19, it's either 1992 or 1995. And um, there was a listing of 500 metre tops of England and Wales. But what Michael did, he used imperial measurement as the lower benchmark, 500 metres, but he then bookended it up to 2,000 foot to complement all the listings that had preceded. So you had this quaint British mix of metric height and imperial height within the same hill list. And for the drop value to differentiate one, differentiate one hill from another, he used the minimum drop of 30 metres, three zero metres again. Um, but you, you, you have this sort of mix. And even um, when you consider uh, 30 metres, what that has come from is 100 foot. It, it's basically the, the nearest whole numbered metric equivalent <laughs> to, a, to 100 foot. So even these intrinsic values that Britain now follows for metric classification within hill lists, many of them have their origins within imperial measurement. Yeah. And, and all, all of it is arbitrary because all of it has been placed upon the classification via a hill list author, but even the measurement itself is arbitrary that was placed upon, you know, the human population many, many, many decades ago. Mm. So, um, yeah, it's... <laughs>
What you're listening to is a recording I made three years ago with my phone. I wish I'd had my digital audio recorder with me. I was hiking down a mountain in Austria with one of my oldest and best friends. We were passing through what in German is called an Alm, an alpine mountain pasture where cows are kept grazing in the summer. We've now heard how looking for signals and meaning that the empirical facts don't suggest can lead us to a better understanding of the empirical facts themselves in spite of ourselves. And we've also heard how things can, at first glance, seem rock solid and empirical, but which are ambiguous when you inspect them more closely. Kierkegaard said when you stand on the high precipice, staring down at the abyss, you're faced with unbearable ambiguity. The impulse to leap is great. In anxiety, he writes, there is the selfish infinity of possibility, which does not tempt like a choice, but endearingly disquiets with its sweet anxiousness. Anyhow, I have one more thing for you. Here's Carl Zimmer, also recorded three years ago, just a couple of months before my hike in the Austrian Alps. Biology involves studying philosophically challenging things. You know, we don't have a, we don't even have a good definition of life. I mean, mm-hmm. yeah. so, you know, but that's, that doesn't mean we shouldn't keep studying it. Um, and that doesn't mean that there are actually things to study. So there are things to study in biology, like individual organisms and like populations and species. Now species are blurry, but you know, mountains are blurry too. I mean, I can't tell you. <laughs> yeah, that's true. I, yeah. I can't tell you where, you know, I can't, tell you exactly where a mountain starts or stops but I think we can agree that the mountain is there yeah uh, and and to kind of get hung up on on the borders tr- on the- yeah to just be to say like okay no but if you can't draw a line that exactly lays out the beginning you know and the end of this mountain then I refuse to believe that it exists that's silly mm-hmm. and so, um, you know, on the other hand, like, it is possible to think that there is, you know, something out there in biology that does not, in fact, exist. Mm. And, uh, and um, you know, the, and, the, and, you know, these things we can just put down as having been, you know, mirages. Race and the way it was defined in the 19th century, I think, is, is a mirage. Um, but, you know, if people get disturbed by the fact that we can actually trace people very... Uh, fairly accurately to to places where their ancestors lived, if that disturbs someone because it somehow seems to kind of like uh, remind them of old ideas of race, I think they're making a mistake. I think they're 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 not looking carefully enough at actually what the science, how the science works, and what the science is actually telling you and not telling you. You've reached the end of part one of our series. Race, is that a thing? A Million Little Gods is produced at the University of Hamburg. Writing and production have been by my co-host, Ben Federson and me. Audio production has been by Kai Dyke and me. Kai, congratulations on the really cute new puppy. Our other student producers for this first part of the season have been Julia Appa, Leonie Bauer, Marin Christoph, and Pat Nell. Many thanks to some others who have contributed along the way. Kwang Hyo Fan, Siegfried Ham, Jasmine Kazdak, Niklas Parchefeld, Josie Paulus, and Anna Pejic. And of course, thank you to all of our various guests. You can continue to find us online at amillionlittlegods.com. We're on Twitter 
Our handle is at AMLG Podcast. You can also find us on Instagram. We're AMLG underscore podcast. And on Facebook, we're Facebook.com slash A Million Little Gods. We're taking a break, but believe us, we're just getting started. Many of the most challenging episodes are still to come. So stay on the lookout for part two of our series, or as we're planning on calling it, season two, side B. Till then, I'm Aaron Gowan. Talk to you soon.